We're going to be looking at Job chapters 36 and 37 this afternoon, and I'm going to read chapter 36. Elihu also proceeded and said, Bear with me a little, and I will show you that there are yet words to speak on God's behalf. I will fetch my knowledge from afar. I will ascribe righteousness to my Maker, for truly my words are not false. One who is perfect in knowledge is with you. Behold, God is mighty, but despises no one. He is mighty in strength of understanding. He does not preserve the life of the wicked, but gives justice to the oppressed. He does not withdraw his eyes from the righteous, but they are on the throne with kings, for he has seated them forever, and they are exalted. And if they are bound in fetters held in the cords of affliction, then he tells them their work and their transgressions, that they have acted defiantly. He also opens their ear to instruction and commands that they turn from iniquity, If they obey and serve him, they shall spend their days in prosperity and their years in pleasures. But if they do not obey, they shall perish by the sword and they shall die without knowledge. But the hypocrites in heart store up wrath. They do not cry for help when he binds them. They die in youth and their life ends among the perverted persons. He delivers the poor in their affliction and opens their ears in oppression. Indeed, he would have brought you out of dire distress into a broad place where there is no restraint, and what is set on your table would be full of richness. But you are filled with the judgment due the wicked. Judgment and justice take hold of you. Because there is wrath, beware lest he take you away with one blow, for a large ransom would not help you avoid it. Will your riches or all your mighty forces, all the mighty forces, keep you from distress? Do not desire the night when people are cut off in their place. Take heed, do not turn to iniquity, for you have chosen this rather than affliction. Behold, God is exalted by his power. Who teaches like him? Who has assigned him his way, or who has said you have done wrong? Remember to magnify his work, of which men have sung. Everyone has seen it. Man looks on it from afar. Behold, God is great, and we do not know him, nor can the number of his years be discovered. For he draws up drops of water which distill as rain from the mist, which the clouds drop down and pour abundantly on man. Indeed, can anyone understand the spreading of clouds, the thunder from his canopy? Look, he scatters his light upon it and covers the depths of the sea. For by these he judges the peoples. He gives food in abundance. He covers his hands with lightning and commands it to strike. His thunder declares it, the cattle also, concerning the rising storm. Let's open with prayer. Our Father and our God, you are great and exalted. You are far beyond our comprehension in all your being and in all your works. And we ought to fear you. Grant to us that we may fear you and may tremble at your majesty and glory even as it is revealed in your creation. Grant also that we may be wise in receiving chastening from your hand. Bless us now with enlightenment, with knowledge and wisdom, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. 
So we are looking in these two chapters in Job at the last part of Elihu's speech, which uh, begins in chapter 32 and goes all the way through chapter 37. In these last two chapters, I think we can see four distinct uh, movements, if you will, or four distinct sections. Uh, Verses 1 to 23 are spoken to Job, and they are a defense of the righteousness of God. I will ascribe righteousness to my maker, Elihu says. And really, that's his idea throughout these two chapters, and in fact was his idea in the preceding chapters as well. But we're going to see a particular focus on it in the first, this first part of chapter 36, verses 1 to 23, that is. Then in verses 24 and following, up to uh, 37, verse 1, actually, I think we have a bad chapter break there again. 37, verse 1 should be, I think, in chapter 36. Uh, chapter 36, verse 24 to 37, verse 1, he's speaking to Job again, but he's here giving to Job a very specific exhortation. Verse 24, remember to magnify his work of which men have sung. And that remember there, that imperative, has a second person singular, not second person plural, uh, form. So it's to Job. Then in verses 2 to 13 of chapter 37, he speaks to others, because here the imperative in verse 2 is in the plural. Hear attentively the thunder of his voice and the rumbling that comes from his mouth. And we don't know exactly who he's talking to here. Before he had, remember, said, uh, you wise men, he had talked to the wise men. Whether that was Job's friends or others who were sitting by, we don't know. But here we don't really know who he's talking to, whether it's the three friends or the wise men, if they're different from the friends, or whether it's all those who are sitting by is not made clear to us. But whoever they are, he exhorts them to hear attentively the thunder of God's voice. And then in verses 14 to 24 of chapter 37, he addresses Job again. And that's very clear in verse 14. Listen to this, O Job, stand still and consider the wondrous works of God. Now if you look at the last three parts then, beginning with chapter 36, verse 24, you see that the theme of each of these three parts is basically similar. He talks about the mighty works of God, and in fact, he talks about the mighty works of God in a specific context, that is, in the whole context of the clouds and the skies and the thunder and lightning and rain and snow and ice and so on. But he breaks this section up with three different exhortations, one to Job first, then one to whoever it is in uh, the second place, and then again to Job at the end. And the exhortations are basically the same. Remember to magnify his work. 
hear attentively the thunder of his voice, and then stand still and consider the wondrous works of God. But first we want to focus our attention on verses 1 to 23 of chapter 36, and this is somewhat different in character from those other three sections. Because here he doesn't really talk about those same mighty works of God that he talks about in the rest of this part of the speech. Verses 2 to 4 are introductory, and he asks whoever it is he's talking to to be patient with him, because though he has already spoken at considerable length, he still has more to say, and what he has to say is on behalf of God, that is, he wants to defend the righteousness of God still further than he has already defended it. And the knowledge which he is going to teach here is knowledge that is not readily available to men. It's not available to men by their own reason. It's not available to men by their own observation. This is knowledge that has to be fetched from afar. That is, it's knowledge which is available only to the eyes of faith which has to be revealed, therefore, by the Almighty himself. And Elihu makes a strong claim here to be speaking truth. My words are not false, he says. One who is perfect in knowledge is with you. He doesn't mean he's omniscient, of course. And he doesn't even mean that he's omniscient in this particular subject he's going to be talking about. He means simply that his knowledge is accurate. But then what is it that he talks about? And what is the truth then that he wants the uh, Job and these others as well to hear? And the first thing that we see that he wants them to hear is that God is mighty. Verse 5. Behold, God is mighty. And again, at the end of that verse, he is mighty in strength of understanding. So he is mighty in power, in his arm, and he is mighty in his understanding. That's one of the themes, then, that he develops throughout these two chapters, the might of God and the might of God's understanding. But he adds into that verse, that phrase, he despises no one. Now that's a a bit difficult, not in translation. If you look at the different translations of that line in verse 5, you'll see that they all basically agree that he's saying he despises no one. The uh, question is about the interpretation of it. What does that mean, that he despises no one? Christopher Ash suggests, and I think he's probably right, that it means that God does not treat anyone as a plaything. His dealings with men are not arbitrary. He deals with men always according to perfect justice. Even though Elihu's focus is on the strength of God, he's saying that that strength of God is not exercised in an arbitrary fashion, he despises no one. But if we now look to the verses that follow, we find that he changes the subject there from the strength of God to the justice of God. 
And that goes all the way through verse 21. Verses 6 to 21 then are all about the justice of God. And in verses 6 to 15, he first talks about this justice of God in a very general way. That is, he's simply describing what this justice of God does. He does not preserve the life of the wicked. That is, when the time for judgment comes, and we've seen that the judgment of God may be delayed, but when the time for judgment comes, God does not preserve the life of the wicked. He's not unjust in that way. He also shows justice then to the oppressed. And he probably means the oppressed by those wicked whose life God does not preserve. So God gives justice both to the wicked and to the oppressed. He does not ever withdraw his eye from the righteous, but he sets these righteous on the throne with kings, for he has seated them or enthroned them forever, and they are exalted. He exalts the righteous. That's how God, God's justice works. He's, he's talking then in the abstract, if you will, about the justice of God, and he says this is what God's justice does. And in verses 8 to 12, then, he talks about, well, what about the, when the righteous suffer? If they, that's the righteous, are bound in fetters, held in the cords of affliction, then he tells them their work and their transgressions that they have acted defiantly. And so he says, God sends affliction on men, and we may look at this affliction as, in general, a correcting or chastening work. He tells men by these uh, afflictions that they are acting defiantly against him, and he means by this to open their ears to instruction, and he commands that they turn from iniquity. He... Um, then speaks of what happens to those who submit and obey. If they obey and serve him after this affliction, they shall spend their days in prosperity and their years in pleasures. But if they do not obey, they shall perish by the sword and they shall die without knowledge. So God brings his justice on the righteous and the wicked again. Now that may sound quite a lot like what the friends were saying, but remember that when the friends said these kinds of things, they were always saying them with a view to persuading Job that his affliction had come because of specific sin, and they were at last driven to such dis desperation in accusing Job of sin, in persuading Job that he had sinned, that they made very specific accusations of sin against Job. You've oppressed the poor and neglected your duty to them. I don't think that's Elihu's point. He's simply saying we're all in need of chastisement. And when God sends affliction, this is sometimes his purpose, to open our ears to instruction, to command us to turn from affliction. A legitimate point. Which is why it was so difficult, of course, for the friends to see the the difference between what Job was saying and what they themselves were saying. And in verses 13 and 14, 
And then he talks about the hypocrites. And I think what he means here is don't think then that if you put on a righteousness that is mere pretense, that you can fool God and escape from his judgment. God judges the righteous and the wicked, and the hypocrites fall into the class of the wicked. God is not deceived by their hypocrisy. They store up wrath because they do not cry for help when he binds them. And notice that word binds goes all the way back to verse 8, where he also talks about binding in fetters. So these hypocrites are those who do not cry for help when he binds them. And so they die in youth, and their life ends among the perverted persons. But again, he delivers the poor in their affliction and opens their ears in oppression. One interesting thing about that verse 15 is that the English Standard Version, and perhaps one or two others, translate that he delivers the poor by their affliction and opens their ears by oppression. He uses affliction and oppression then to open their ears, to instruct them. Just as verse 10 says, he opens their ears to instruction and commands that they turn from iniquity. So that's that first part, and it's it's all about the principles of justice. God judges the wicked, he delivers the righteous. But now in verses 16 to 23, he takes that abstract principle regarding the justice of God, and he applies it to Job. And notice how he uses the singular again in verse 16. Indeed, he would have brought you, singular, Job, out of dire distress into a broad place where there is no restraint. And what is set on your table would be full of richness. So, God would have blessed you, too, if you were righteous, but you are filled with the judgment due the wicked. Again, there are two ways to take that. You can take it as the New King James takes it. That is, Job is receiving the judgment that is due the wicked because he has been wicked, not prior to his affliction, but since his affliction. Judgment and justice have taken hold of him because of that. But you can also read it, you are filled with the judgment of the wicked. The word do is not in the Hebrew. And Elihu may mean then, Job, you have uh, assumed to yourself the right of judging God in the same way that the wicked do. And you have accused God of taking away your justice. And therefore, judgment and justice take hold of you. Then he says, look, Job, you're under wrath. Because there is wrath, beware lest he take you away with one blow. Beware then lest he destroy you before you have received correction. He might come very suddenly and unexpectedly upon you and with one blow take you away. 
And if that happens, no ransom would be able to deliver you from that judgment. Your riches and all the mighty forces could not keep you from distress. In verse 20, don't desire the night. That is, don't think that you can hide your deeds in darkness, because even in darkness, God sometimes cuts people off in their place. You cannot hide from him in darkness. Take heed, do not turn to iniquity, for you have chosen this, that is, you have chosen iniquity, rather than affliction. Notice how he, I think in a very interesting fashion, sets before Job a choice. Job had a choice when he was afflicted, to choose iniquity or to choose affliction. And by choosing affliction, of course, he would choose submission to the will of God in affliction. And Elihu says, you have chosen not to accept, to receive affliction. You have chosen iniquity instead. And in choosing iniquity, then, you have challenged God himself. And so he returns in verses 22 and 23 to the theme of God's strength. He began with it in verse 5. He returns to it in verse 22. Behold, God is exalted by his power. So he, he brackets this whole discussion of the justice of God with these references to God's power. And I think that he's, what he's doing is he's making a very close association between the power and the justice of God. He's really saying they're not separable. Job, you think that they have been separated. On the one hand, you've complained that God is so great in power that you're afraid of him and that you can't even talk coherently to him. And on the other hand, you're saying that he's been unjust to you. Well, I'm telling you, Job, that you can't really separate his justice and his power. They belong together. He who is almighty is also all just. Who teaches like him? Who has assigned him his way? Or who has said, you have done wrong? You can't do this with the almighty. You cannot teach like he teaches. You cannot tell him what to do. You cannot say to him, you have done wrong. So then in verse, verses 24 and following, the next part of his speech, Elihu exhorts Job to remember to magnify God's work. And he talks then about the greatness of that work of God. It's a work of which men have sung. Everyone has seen it. Man looks on it from afar. What does he see when he looks at the work of God? He sees, behold, God is great. And we do not know him. He is incomprehensible in his greatness. We cannot number his years. He is beyond our capacity to plumb his debts. 
And then he starts to talk about specific works of God. He draws up drops of water, which distill as rain from the mist, which the clouds drop down and pour abundantly on man. He understands the whole process of evaporation and condensation and precipitation. He knows just how this process works. And he says, this is all God's doing. It's not just a a basic natural process which happens by itself. It's God working when you see this thing happening. You should be magnifying his work when you look at this process. Can you or anyone understand the spreading of the clouds? That is, the the clouds are spread across the sky in various patterns and in various ways. There are various kinds of clouds and so on. Can you understand how all that happens? That these different clouds develop and spread out as they do? Can you explain the thunder from his canopy? Look, he scatters his light upon it, that is, upon the sea, and covers the depths of the sea. His his lightnings spread out over the whole vast face of the seas and cover their depths. Going on to verse 32, he covers his hands with lightning and commands it to strike. And I think what we should see here is that Elihu's picturing God is holding the lightning bolts in his hand and, and throwing them and making those lightning bolts strike exactly where he wants them to fall. His thunder declares it. Not only does he throw his lightning bolts and command them to strike exactly where he wants, but then he, as it were, announces what he's done to man. The thunder declares what he has just done. He's, as it were, saying in his thunder, look, I've just thrown one of my lightning bolts, you should observe. And the cattle do the same. Perhaps what Elihu means here is that the cattle can also announce the storm because they take refuge from it. And so they notice. And men ought also then to see and to understand the work of God in this. So God is great. That's his main point here. But there are some other things that we should um, understand from these verses we've skipped over a couple of verses as we were working our way through them. And one of those, especially, was found in um, in an earlier part of the chapter. Um, I'm, I'm looking for it here. I can't find it at the moment. He takes this and he applies it to man. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry, I can't, I can't find it at the moment. It's verse uh, 31 first. Verse 31, I'm sorry. There it is. For by these, he says, and this is the lightning and the thunder and the rain and so on, by these he judges 
the peoples. He gives food in abundance. And see, what Elihu is saying is, look, these things happen. All this, these clouds, this lightning, the rain, and, and all this stuff happens. And he can have different purposes in it. On the one hand, it can be a purpose of judgment. He judges the people. And on the other hand, it can be a means of giving food in abundance. So he has two different purposes in these works. Sometimes he makes people suffer by these things. And sometimes by these things he gives food in abundance. In fact, he can use the very same storm to accomplish both purposes. To judge some and to give food in abundance to others. And then in 37 verse 1, which I think belongs with it, Men should fear him. At this also my heart trembles and leaps from its place. He uses himself as as an example of this. And he says, I tremble when I see these mighty works of God. And he's suggesting, of course, that Job should do the same. Remember to magnify his work. So that's the second part. He he talks about God's work, especially in the weather, of course, in in a great storm. And he says, when you see that work, you should magnify God, even if it causes affliction for you and trouble, if it's a judgment upon you. You should magnify his work, and your heart should tremble before him. Then in the third part of his speech, chapter 37, verses 2 to 13, he talks, as we've seen, to others as well as Job. And again, the, the emphasis is kind of the same. He talks about the, the storm and the rain and, and the thunder and the lightning again. But notice here that his particular emphasis is on hearing in these things the voice of God. It's especially true in verses 2 to five, hear attentively the thunder of his voice and the rumbling that comes from his mouth. He sends it forth under the whole heaven. That is, no matter where you go, under the heavens, you can hear this voice of God. His lightning goes to the ends of the earth. After the lightning, a voice roars. He thunders with his majestic voice. He does not restrain them when his voice is heard. That is, he he lets it rip, as it were. And the thunder is so loud that it can frighten us and even deafen us and perhaps flatten us. God thunders marvelously with his voice. He does great things which we cannot comprehend. So he hears in the thunder and the lightning the voice of God, God speaking. And God speaking very loudly. But he also sees the voice of God in the snow and the rain. For he says to the snow, the snow comes, why does it come? He says to the snow, fall on the earth. A gentle rain falls, why does it fall? Because he has spoken. Heavy rain comes, heavy rain that shows how great his strength is. That, too, is the result of his voice, his command. We'll skip again over verse 7 for the moment and hope that I can find it when we get to the end of this section. The 
and go to verse 9. And here, notice he, he talks about the south and the whirlwind that comes from the south and the cold that comes from the scattering winds of the north. And he says, this wind that blows, that's the breath of God. Verse 10, by the breath of God, ice is given and the broad waters are frozen. So with moisture, he saturates the thick clouds. He scatters his bright clouds. They swirl about, being turned by his guidance. You see the clouds swirling around in the heavens, growing and diminishing and blowing overhead and so on. It's all because he commands them. And they are being guided precisely in all their path by his voice, that they may do whatever he commands them on the face of the whole earth. So again, he's calling Job's attention to this work of God, or not just Job, but these others, to the work of God in the creation. And he's saying, we should hear the voice of God in it. If we go back now to verse 7, Notice that he adds there, he seals the hand of every man that all men may know his work. I think the point he's making there is he does not allow men to interfere with this work that I've been describing, the thunder and the lightning and the rain and the cold and so on. He restrains the hands of man from being involved in that. He allows them to be involved in some of his work in the earth, but not in that work so that they may know that that is his work and his alone, that it has nothing to do with them, that they can claim no credit for it, no exercise of power by themselves. It is all of God. And even the beasts know this, and go into the dens and remain in their lairs. Verse 8. And then in verse 13, again, his purposes in it. He causes it to come, this these storms and whirlwinds and so on, whether for correction or for his land or for mercy. And here here again, I think he's talking about different purposes of God in these works. Sometimes they are for correction, that is, to call men to repentance, to remind them of their sin and say, look, I am God, you must hear my voice, you must repent of your sins, you must return to me. Sometimes he does it for his land, that is simply for the earth. He brings this to water the earth and to bring his goodness upon the earth. And sometimes he does it for mercy, that is for the sake of his people. And we should think here of his uh, work in Joshua 10, for example, of raining great hailstones on the enemies of Israel so that he destroyed many of them. And Israel did not have to deal with them. Or in Judges 5, where Deborah celebrates the um, work of God in bringing the torrents of Kishon upon the horses of the Canaanites so that they were swept away by it. God does merciful works. He does correcting works. He does works that are of benefit to his earth. All of these are purposes of God in these great works that he does. But we don't necessarily know which purpose 
he's aiming at in particular circumstances. And then in the final part of the chapter, he turns again to Job and he says, stand still and consider the wondrous works of God. And again, he goes back to this theme of the clouds and so on. Do you know when God dispatches them? Notice the focus changes here. He, he approaches the same subject again, but from a different angle. And he asks Job's questions this time. Do you know when God dispatches the clouds? Do you know when he causes the light of his cloud to shine? Do you know how the clouds are balanced, how they're hung in the heavens? Can you explain the wondrous works of him who is perfect in knowledge? Why are your garments hot when he quiets the earth by the south wind? With him, have you spread out the skies? Have you been involved in these works of God? Those skies which are strong as a cast metal mirror, which may be as bronze and turn the earth to iron because they are bronze. Notice how he's pressing home to Job that he's not equal to God in strength. You don't know the explanation for his works. You can't do the kinds of works that God does. And these questions anticipate, don't they, the questions that God begins to ask in chapter 38. God says to Job later on, do you know, can you, in the same way that Elihu is saying it to Job here. Elihu says, well, if you can do these things, verses 19 and following, then teach us what we should say to him. You think that you can contend with God, that you can have the right and the power to justify yourself before God? Well, then we would like to hear from you. Teach us what we should say, because we can prepare nothing because of the darkness, because God is hidden in incomprehensible greatness. Should he be told that I wish to speak? Does he even have an obligation to listen to me when I call or when I want to talk to him? If a man were to speak, surely he would be swallowed up. Job said something very similar to that earlier, didn't he? He said, I want to talk to God, but when I contemplate him, he's either hidden or I'm so overwhelmed with fear that I cannot talk. And Elihu says, that's the way it's supposed to be. If a man were to speak, surely he would be swallowed up in the presence of this great God. Even now, men cannot look at the light when it is bright in the skies. He says, you can't look at the sun when the wind has cleared the clouds away. But God comes from the north as golden splendor, greater than the sun. With God is awesome majesty. As for the Almighty, we cannot find him. He is excellent in power, in judgment, and abundant justice. He does not oppress. Therefore, men fear him. He shows no partiality to any who are wise 
of heart. So the whole emphasis of especially these last three sections has been God is great. He does great works. And who is man in relation to this great God? How can he understand, explain, or do any of God's works? How can he expect a right to speak to God? What, Job, what Elihu is doing, I think, in these uh, last three sections of the speech especially, is trying to create in Job a sense of fear of God and of wonder at his great works, and therefore also of humility before God and of submission to the hand of God. He sees that Job has transgressed and gone far beyond what is right for a man to do in saying, God has taken away my justice. He has prepared the way somewhat for God, and so we hear no response of Job to this. Immediately in chapter 38, God begins to speak. Elihu's speech is, in a sense, of a peace with the speech of God. Maybe we could even say he has uh, softened Job up a little bit by this speech and prepared him actually to hear what God has to say to him. But there are a couple of more important points I think that we should make here. One is that he makes this very close association between the power of God and the justice of God. Notice again how in talking about the justice of God in the first part of chapter 36, he brackets his discussion of the justice of God with descriptions of the strength of God. Behold, God is mighty, verse 5. Then about the justice of God, all the way down to verse 21. And in verse 22, behold, God is exalted by his power. So he puts that justice of God into the context of God's greatness and God's power. And he continues to do that then. He appeals then in answering Job to the greatness of God. Not just to the justice of God, but he says to Job, look, you think God has been unjust to you. Well, let me talk to you about the power of God in his works. He doesn't try to explain how God has been just to him. He says to him, consider how great in power he is. Learn it from his works. It's almost as if Elihu is saying to Job, in the case of God, might is right. <coughs> power is justice. It's never the case with man, of course. It cannot be the case with man. Too often, in fact, power is injustice with man. But with Elihu, with God, rather, Elihu says, power is justice, might is right. It's exactly because he is the mighty God that he is also the just God. 
There is no possibility of injustice with him simply because he is the Almighty One. But that power of God then is never exercised in an arbitrary way. It's always with purpose. It's always with justice. He has many different purposes though. It may be for correction. It may be to teach man his sin. It may be for his earth. It may be for blessing for his people. Even when it seems a matter of affliction, it may be for blessing. He has all kinds of purposes. And we don't always understand those purposes of God. All we can say is, yes, he has these different purposes, but what purpose does he have in mind? For example, when he sends his whirlwind against the house of Job's children, Remember, Elihu made a reference to the whirlwind in his speech to Job. Well, what was the purpose of God's whirlwind that destroyed Job's children? Elihu doesn't try to explain it. Job's friends did, but Elihu doesn't try to explain it. He says God is great. He's exalted by his power. Who teaches like him? Who has assigned him his way? Who has said you can do wrong, you have done wrong? You can't do that. And so his answer, it's an answer then to the whole question of suffering is this. There are reasons for what God does. When he brings affliction on the righteous, there are reasons, but we may not be able to understand them. He's far beyond our comprehension. It may be very painful. It may lead you to question God, to say, why God? It may make you wonder whether God is really just or not, but know that in the very exercise of his power towards you, He is also revealing his justice. He is always the just God because he is the Almighty One and cannot do anything other than perfect justice. And that's finally where every sufferer has to end up. God is Almighty. He has the right to do as he pleases in heaven and on earth. He has the right to do as he pleases with me. He may bring upon me whatever suffering he thinks is necessary. The only thing I can be persuaded of is that he does it for good reason. I don't know why, but he does it for good reason. He is just in his power. He cannot be otherwise. And therefore, I must submit. And this is the lesson that God drives home even more forcefully in chapters 38 and following. I am the Almighty, Job. I do my will in heaven and on earth. Who are you to contend with me? May God bless us with his word.